Thanks, Dan, for reading uh, our passage today from Jeremiah 32. would encourage you to follow along, uh, whether that's by phone or, or with a paper Bible before you. Um, you. If you are new, then you've caught us on uh, week six of seven uh, sermons in a few chapters of Jeremiah. Not all of them. Uh, Jeremiah 32 is for today. And uh, at the very start of this little series, I flagged that these five chapters that we've been looking at from from 29 through to 33 uh, these five chapters of jeremiah um, are, are not typical with regard to the tone uh, and the content of the rest of the book and um, i sort of over sabbatical time uh, felt god quite specifically leading us to look at these particular chapters and this theme that we've been thinking of about coming home within the the love of god uh, I felt that they were particularly fitting for us uh, in this season of life together in the church. But as we've considered the grace and the love and the goodness of God and the mercy of God and the faithfulness and the kindness of God and all these wonderful things we've been thinking about, we have been trying to keep in mind along the way that you can only see the, the full extent of the, the wonderful radiance of these things shining forth if you see them against the reality of the terrible darkness of the context. And of these chapters that we've been looking at, this one, chapter 32, more than any of the others, highlights and, and focuses a little bit on this darkness. Not, it has to be said, to the same extent as you know, other parts of the book in, in general, but still significantly here. What we have in this passage is a backdrop of sorrow and surrender, is one way to say it, and a call to courage and hope as we live in light of that. So I just want to look at those, you know, one by one, sorrow and surrender. This chapter places us right in the midst of the devastating fall of Jerusalem. So if you look at verse 2 of chapter 32, it says, At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. So this is the year 588 BC, and this sacking of Jerusalem took place over the course of about two years. And it's just a horrible, awful time in a number of different ways. First of all, for the people of Israel, at a kind of macro level, this was a devastating time. This place, Jerusalem, was the great city of God. God's abode, his place of presence and power. This was the, the place that he'd given to his people as their inheritance, his residence with them. And, and, and the people of Israel, their identity was deeply bound up in that reality, that this was their home. And, and, and that was crumbling before their very eyes. So at this kind of macro level, this is a horrible, horrendous moment for God's people. But then also, at the ground level, in terms of the reality of what this siege of Jerusalem meant. I, I said to turn Jerusalem, to Jeremiah 32, turn over a few pages to Lamentations, uh, and we're going to read some words from Lamentations chapter 2 to see 
sort of horrifically devastating time that this was. You get a sense of that as you read especially chapters 1 to 3 of Lamentations. Let me just read a few verses from chapter 2 of Lamentations. So we'll start in, in verse 10. Listen to what is happening here in these horrible days. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground, that's Jerusalem by the way, sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, that is Jerusalem. Because infants and babies faint, that is to say they die in the streets of the city. Verse 12, they cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. Verse 15, all your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it, we see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. Jump down to verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see, God's people cry to him. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day. My terrors on every side, and on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Just unthinkable horrors to fall upon a city. Such devastation, even that mothers have taken to having no other alternative but to resort to cannibalism. Such was the horror of that situation. At a macro level, Jerusalem, our dwelling place, we've gone, gone. And then just this intense, immediate struggle, violence, destitution, pain, horror. But there's another, even more fundamental sense in which this is a time of great sorrow. Certainly it was from the people's perspective, but also from God's perspective. This was an awful time in which it's very clear from that passage in Lamentations, right, that it's, it's God who is bringing about this judgment. But it was that God had been provoked by his people, whom he had loved, whom he had shown mercy year after year, after decade after decade. God had been provoked into bringing his judgment against his people. Look at verse 28 of chapter 32, where it says, there, if you just bear with me. And, um, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. 
the Chaldeans are fighting against the Chaldeans who are fighting against the city shall come and set the city on fire and burn it. Now here is the reason why this is all happening. The Chaldeans are going to burn the city, including these houses, with the houses on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal, false god of the day, and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. Let's keep reading. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Do you see, it's not just a select group that have blown it, the whole community are to blame here. Verse 33, they have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind, that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Do you see the extent of the evil of the people of Israel in these days? Complete abandonment of God. Complete abandonment of the ways of God. The heart of God to show love and kindness in their community and from their community out to those in need around about them. Giving themselves over to these horrific, almost unspeakable practices, including child sacrifice and all sorts of other horrible things. This was a truly sorrowful time. And alongside that then, as Jeremiah acknowledged that, he also came to the place of surrender. Sorrow and surrender before God. Look at verse 17 of the chapter. Ah, Lord God, Jeremiah says, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. You know, as you think about this circumstance, does that little phrase, ah, Lord God, not catch it, that sense of surrender. Here in this prayer, he's acknowledging God's power, God's creativity, he made this beautiful world and heavens around about. He's acknowledging and highlighting God's limitless strength, his love, his justice, his holiness and grandeur. And he's going to go on in, in this prayer to acknowledge in the coming verses, which we're not going to read, but he acknowledges God's sovereignty, God's power to save. He, he, he tells the story of how God showed his love for the people of Israel, the, the power of his saving hand, his, his heart to, to give 
the people of Israel, their land, to be this place of blessing and bounty. And then, from verse 23 onwards, he highlights this reality again, that God's people were not interested in him, but just gave up on him, and just embraced the spirit of the age, along with all the godless behavior that went along with that. So the backdrop here in chapter 32 is sorrow and surrender. Acknowledging the horrors of the day to God, to the people in that very immediate sense, and indeed also at that sort of deeper level, the loss of this wonderful city, their home, Jerusalem, but then in that context, coming somehow to this place of abandonment and need and surrender before God, acknowledging the truth of who he is, the fact that he is good, but that his goodness and his kindness have been trampled, and just acknowledging the devastation of this moment before God. And I want to suggest to us all this morning that this should be part of our demeanor before God week by week sorrow and surrender there is much around us that should bring us to that place of sorrow I don't think that's a controversial statement I suspect all of us could identify things that we are or have been sorrowful about. What, what are those things? Ponder them just as you're sitting there just now. What is it in the world that you're sorrowful about? And here's the question we need to ask. Why? Why is that the case? What is at the root of that distress? that we can sometimes feel as we look around the world. What good has been trampled that you see? What sense of, of, of balance and, and rightness and well-being that I think every single human on the face of this earth yearns for and believes should exist? What sense of goodness has been shaken or, or done away with? Dan helpfully prayed for what's happening in COP26, which is starting today. And there's this example right before us of a broadly shared sense of sorrow and concerns. People look around the planet and grieve the damage that we have done and are doing and may well still do to it. Now, regardless of your response to the different approaches of different activists or different politicians and their responses and things like that. This is a subject, care for this world that we're in, that all followers of God should be stirred about. This is, as we've just been reading in verse 17, the God who made the heavens and the earth by his great power and who is very clear in the earliest chapters of the bible who called us to care for this world to steward this world that he called into being so when that fails to happen as at least in, to some extent 
it has, let's be honest, we should be grieved by that sorrow and stirred to action. Now, that happens to be a cause that should be shared, is shared, not just among Jesus' church, but is shared by huge numbers of the population of this planet by the spur of this day. But there are many things that we should be grieved about that are not in the slightest seen as problematic by many of our colleagues, friends, or family. You know, when I ask you what you're sorrowful about, I'm sure some of you, hope some of you, thought of the creation issue that's before us. I'm sure for others in, in, in the congregation here, the other things that come to mind that have grieved you. How are we going to process that? I'm saying, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that sorrow and surrender should be part of our week-to-week -week life. How are we going to navigate that? How are we to process the sorrow? There are different ways for us to think about and to grieve and pray and act about the different issues that we come across in the world. And, and, and I want to just plead with all of us that we must be careful to not fall into thoughtless judgmentalism. As we think about the things that we're sorrowful about, we're all prone to go, yeah, yeah, there's this issue and those people over there need to get a grip on it. Right? We need to guard against that. One way for us to process what's happening in the world is as our status as human beings, men and women, as image bearers of God. And there is a sense, right, in God's common grace, it's sometimes called, that all women and men in the earth can identify when things are not as they should be. But there is a deeper and in fact a more urgent calling for us not just as we think about ourselves as human beings, but for those of us who are part of the church of Jesus Christ. That is to say, those who have responded to God's call, those who have, as we've talked about, surrendered their lives before him and have been drawn in to fellowship and relationship with God. You see, God's response to humanity's rejection of him and his ways and their trampling of this world was not just a general response, but God had a specific plan in mind. He chose for himself a people, and he chose to establish them to be a holy nation, and to be a people who were to display to the world what it meant to live rightly under the, the rule and the reign of God, and, and a people who would bring the shalom of God, the, the wholeness and the beauty and the abundance and the goodness that God has, has, has set this world up to live in. But what happened to that family? The story of the people of Israel, right? And we're in this devastating moment of it. Well, that people, that family, could not live like that, just as Navaskar. But God in his kindness did not make that full stop at the end of the story. 
from that family, one would come who did perfectly embody what it meant to live within the righteousness and the peace and the blessing of God. And through that one, through Jesus Christ, God's people now were to be from, not just the people of Israel, but from every tribe and tongue, people of the new covenant that we've been learning about over these last couple of weeks. A new humanity. That's who we're called to be. Alive in Christ Jesus to display in his power and in his strength what this kingdom of righteousness and peace should look like. And here's the thing. As God's people, our first calling, as we consider the sorrows of this world, is to look within, to humbly examine what are the ways we have got it wrong? What are the ways we have erred? What are the ways we have failed to show the world a different way? You read Jeremiah. This is clearly the primary ministry of Jeremiah and indeed all the prophets. Not to ignore the evils of the other nations around about them, even the ones that were attacking them in this day, but primarily to lament and to call out the failure of God's people to live differently with purity and goodness and justice and care and love. Read the Gospels and you see that this was the way Jesus lived and operated. Again, not ignoring the horrors of his day, but addressing primarily and addressing these things by calling out the so-called people of God who were living in hypocrisy and injustice and arrogance and godlessness and, and, and ministering to those in need, ministering to those on the edges, calling those who were far off to come home. And Jesus' sternest words were for the, the so-called religious leaders of the day and those who thought they had it all together because they were meant to show the world a different way to live and they weren't doing it. It's not just Jesus. You read the apostles' writings in the New Testament and this was their concern. Again, not oblivious to the issues of the day, but firstly, primarily, most urgently concerned that the church of Jesus Christ live faithfully as people embodying the love and the holiness of Christ to the extent that the letters of the New Testament are written to Christians, are written to churches, calling them back to faithfulness in God's ways. Would you turn or tap over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5? This is such an important passage. But as you think about the struggles of this world, the, the wrong things, in, that are happening in the world today. First Corinthians 5 is a short chapter, but so important. It deals head on with some of the things that I suspect some of you are thinking of when you thought of what you're sorrowful about the world around about you today. For example, it deals primarily in First Corinthians 5 with sexual immoralities, which is one of the issues that we would identify in the world, where the world has got it wrong, the world is living under this skewed and, and harmed 
an, an upset idea of what it means to live with regard to our sexuality. But listen, what you need to know in 1 Corinthians 5 is that Paul, as he addresses this issue, does not do so primarily in a general sense, but deals with it by calling out the way the church had blown it. Listen to what Paul writes. Look at verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Right? And, and, and that's, that message might be known pretty well that the church will yeah, well, the church are those people that don't want to section, uh, associate with sexually immoral people. But Paul just flips it right upside down from the way that we normally live into this passage. Right? So listen, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, and then he broadens it to other issues, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if he or she is guilty of sexual immorality, and then again he's going to broaden it, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Then Paul, listen to this, what Paul says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So this just should instruct for us how we think about sorrow and surrender. Dear friends, may we come with humility and may we come and look inward at what are the ways that we are falling short of, of radiantly displaying the beauty of the way of Jesus. That's why when you pondered what you're sorrowful about, I, I asked you to consider what is at the root of that. Is it just an issue that you've picked up from the, the spirit of the age, you know, whatever the, the popular culture or, or social media or, or the vibe of the day or the hot topic of the day would say is important? Or is your sorrow rooted in the deep things of God that he lays out for us? in the scriptures. There is so much for us to be sorrowful about. We've mentioned climate change. There are other huge issues. Cosmic betrayals. Tramplings of God's beautiful order. Such as the bitterness and unforgiveness that we can live with within the church of Jesus Christ. Or the rejection of God's heart in understanding that he created us male and female to live in purity before him, either in singleness or within marriage. And other issues that we should be sorrowful about. The total complacency we can embrace regarding the poor and the needy around about us, the foreigner among us, 
or the pursuit of other things more important to us than our life in Jesus, whether that's money, or reputation, or food, or drink, or time to ourselves, or other things like this passage in, in Jeremiah speaks of, of child sacrifice. Well, what of, in our day, the devastation of abortion and its normalization? in this culture. Remember Paul's words. What have we to do with judging outsiders? The first order of our sorrow should be to understand that we have failed to fully and rightly and truly and humbly display to the world a different way. Do we do that in our personal lives, in our families and among our friends, in our church families, in our small groups here on a Sunday? Do, do we display to this world what we should be? Look would you with me at verse 33 in Jeremiah 32 because there's a, there's a phrase that is helpful for us here. It says, they have turned to me their back and not their face. It seems to me that again and again in the scriptures, there are hard things that we struggle with. And again and again, the writers of the Bible turn their face toward God and struggle with many aspects of life and dialogue with God and engage with God and, and lament before God and question God and have that sense of, this isn't right, I'm struggling here, God. And they, they, they share that, face forward to God. We can do that. The things that we find hard in life, bring them to God. He's gentle with us when we do that, right? I mean, Jesus said, come like little children. What do little children do? They just share honestly their struggles. But what's different is when we turn our back on God. And you know, I have to say, whenever I meet with people and they're struggling with something that they think or know God is calling them to do, you just can get a sense, does this person want to turn towards Jesus in this deep struggle? Or are, are they inclining towards turning away from Jesus? Bring your struggle to God with your face towards him. Don't turn your back on him. Don't turn your back on him. Jeremiah has the sense of sorrow and surrender. This is verses 16 to 25. He brings all of it to God and acknowledges again his greatness, his righteousness, his love, his power to save, his face before God, trying to understand what's going on here. He calls on God's name and comes and surrender before him. That's the backdrop of chapter 32. And we should acknowledge that daily in our lives. And in that context, God calls for courage and hope. Don't worry, this is not the halfway point of the message. We're further on than halfway through. 
but there's courage and hope which we see in this passage, and we see it in at least three ways in how Jeremiah engages here and how God responds to him. First of all, Jeremiah faces God's hard truths. This is what we've been spending a lot of the time doing so far in this message. It's what Jeremiah does in this chapter in general, but also specifically in verses 1 to 5. There's a little scenario there where the king of Judah at that time, King Zedekiah, is angry at Jeremiah because uh, Jeremiah has brought a very hard truth to this leader of God's people. Look at verse 3. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned Jeremiah, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. And on it goes. Zedekiah is mad because Jeremiah was calling for him to live rightly before God. So the question for all of us is simple. Brothers and sisters, will we have the courage to face God's hard truths with our faces turned towards him, not with our backs turned from him, in humble dialogue with God and with our Christian family, will we be people who will help one another to understand how should we live in this foreign land which is so tough and so other? From what we read in so many parts of the scriptures, Jeremiah faced God's hard truths in tough one-on-one encounters, in prayer before God, to the broader people of God and to all those around about him. So should we. May God help us face these hard things head on. That's the first thing. He faced hard truths. Secondly, Jeremiah embraces bold hope. There is a fascinating story, it's probably the most uh, sort of prose section of these chapters of Jeremiah that we've been looking at, uh, and it's in this chapter, and we don't have time to look at it in detail, but in the midst of the horror of this siege upon Jerusalem, listen to what happens. Look at verse 8. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me, behold, sorry, that's verse 6. <laughs> Let's keep going to verse 8. Behold, Hanwell, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field. And then I love the little bit at the end of the verse. Do you see that? Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. <laughs> yeah, right, Jeremiah, because the exact thing that God said was going to happen happened. Jeremiah! In the midst of this devastating time that we looked at earlier, what does he do? He buys a field. What? The enemy was literally besieging them. What might you imagine Jeremiah's inclination have been in that context? I mean, probably terrified. There's houses burning around about him. The city is crumbling. There's no food. Terror, maybe despair, maybe... Alternatively, depending on who Jeremiah was like, maybe he would want to boast in his self-righteousness because he had prophesied this and, and now it was coming to pass. Or, or maybe, if he was wired differently, maybe he would want to go and, and, and take up the fight against these enemies that were attacking Jerusalem. But God calls Jeremiah to buy a field. And you can hear the slight confusion that he had about this in verses 24. Listen to this. 
Um, behold, the siege mounts have come up to the city to take it, and because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses. Though, you know, in brackets, almost like, in case you've forgotten God, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. But Jeremiah buys the field. What is this all about? God is telling Jeremiah to not only face hard truths, but to live with bold and defiant and courageous hope in his day. Two, in the midst of sorrow and despair, to what? To point to something beautiful. To, to point to a place of hope and goodness and flourishing. To take back from the enemy a place of peace and to do so wholeheartedly. If you have time, if you look at verses 9 to 14, you can see that Jeremiah does this with great care and with great diligence following this very detailed process. Because why? Look at verse 15. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Defeat and trauma and destruction and sorrow are not the end of the story, but plenty and goodness and feasting and, and peace and wholeness. That's where the story is going. And our calling then, friends, as the people of God in this time of exile is to point towards what is coming, to buy fields and gardens, though all around about us is fire, and destruction. What are you buying in this season with the way that you are living? What are you spending your money and your time and your hope on? In what way are you in your life showing the world a different reality to the one that they see around about them? In what way are you pointing people forward to the coming everlasting peace of God. Hillview, community, church, yes, we need to face the hard truths, but we also, I want to encourage you, go and buy a field this week, this term, this decade. Show defiant courage in the hope of God. It might look crazy to some. Take back a piece of ground in this world that seems to have been given over to the enemy and bring God's peace and flourishing there. Jeremiah faces God's hard truths, embraces God's bold hope, and then finally, with this way, close. Jeremiah awaits God's renewing zeal. Awaits God's renewing zeal. Sorrow and surrender and in that context, then courage and hope. Not ultimately in ourselves, but hope in God. From verse 35 onwards, we have one of these stunning juxtapositions that we see so often in the scriptures. 
So let's, let's read them. Jeremiah had been sharing up to verse 35 God's words of judgment because of the horrors of the way that they had been living. Let's read it again, verse 35. They built the high place of the vile and the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, by pestilence. Behold, I will. What do you expect to come after this? One of these therefores that just seem to make no sense. God calls out what we see when we're left ourselves. Do you see that? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, is given into the hand. That's what we often see, right? We see the defeat, we see the destruction, we see the mess, we see the pain. Sword, famine, pestilence. But God says something else. This is a passage that Dan read for us. We're not going to read it all again. But it's just relentless grace. And compassion and blessing. This is the renewal and the restoration that God brings. Like I say, we're not going to read it all, but follow along with me. Look at verse 37. He gathers us from our lostness in far off places. He brings us back home to dwell in safety. Look at verse 38. He declares the truth over his, over us, that we are his and he is ours. Verse 39, he sets our hearts straight before him in unity, giving us together one heart and one way that we would fear God forever for our own good. Verse 40, we were hearing about this a couple of weeks ago, about this new covenant that God makes for us, but here it's described not just as new, but as an everlasting covenant of God's endless goodness towards us so that we would fear him and not turn away from him. And then we will read verse 41 again. I will rejoice in doing them good. Don't you love this God of ours? He doesn't just do good to us, but he says, hey, I'm going to rejoice in doing good to you. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. How, you know, a little bit along the way from time to time? No, I will do this with all my heart and my soul. It's amazing when God speaks like that. God doesn't do half measures. And yet there are some times when he says, hey, I need you to know that this thing that I'm talking about here, I do it with all my heart and soul. Really brief aside, the very central verse of the book of Lamentations is Lamentations 3, 33. And it says that God does not willingly, and the literal translation is God does not from his heart afflict the children of man. Okay, so you wonder, why is this sorrow coming upon me? Why is this struggle? Why has God brought this into my life? It says there, God does not willingly, God does not from his heart bring that pain into your life. It's a crazy, mysterious thing for us to get our heads around. Yes, God is sovereign over all these things, but it does not come from his heart. What comes from his heart here? Verse 30, 41. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land of faithfulness with all my heart and soul. This is why I said Jeremiah awaits God's renewing zeal 
Because he brings all this blessing, all this goodness, not dispassionately, but with all his heart and soul. And then in the following verses, we see that this field that Jeremiah bought was just a foretaste of what God was to do. And that is, friends, how it is with us. As we go out into this world, we face hard truths. We're called to show courageous hope. All because, most ultimately, we are waiting God's renewing zeal with all his heart and soul. He will bring me home. He will bring me home. He will bring us home to the place of abundance and blessing beyond our wildest dreams. Yes, it's hard living as exiles in a foreign land. It's sorrowful. We need to come and surrender before God. And then he calls us to courage and to hope in him. May God help us as pray. Thank you, Father God, that with all your heart and soul, you desire to show kindness and blessing and goodness to us. With all your heart and soul, and Lord, we're praying now, we know that one day we will know this and live in this reality fully. But we're praying now by your spirit, come in this moment and help us taste something of all your heart and soul desire for us to know the goodness of God. As we acknowledge the sorrows and the struggles in this world, help us to face hard truths. Help us to live with courageous hope. And now, as we just give you this time and this coming week, help us know your goodness and your blessing. Spirit, we open our hearts to do this now.